Well, hey, friends, I'm really glad we can be together today. It's been another rough week for our country as we continue to grieve and process the wrongful deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and the pain and the anger and the confusion that has followed in its wake. These, of course, are only the most recent examples of, of long-standing heartaches and injustices and, and violence that have been experienced by so many people of color in our country and by black Americans in particular. And the images that we've been watching on our screens have been so disturbing. The, the voices of people have been so intense. Our own hearts are so burdened and broken. We felt as though we couldn't just go on with church as usual this Sunday. So we're going to take a break from our original teaching plan and allow ourselves some time to, to think and process about all of these things from a biblical perspective. Now today happens to be our annual meeting day, and so I was going to speak into the vision and mission of the church in this uh, season of COVID-19 and even beyond. That's still an important message, and so we'll plan on doing that next Sunday, Lord willing. If you would like to hear a little bit more about uh, what's happening in the life of the church and our plans for the coming months, I invite you to join our virtual annual meeting this afternoon at 4 o'clock. You can just go to the homepage and scroll down and find the annual meeting right there. What we'd like to do today is to take some time to think biblically about racism. Now, this is an approach we take from time to time here at Grace, a way of, of tackling some tough subjects. When we come at them this way, we're, we're not trying to offer simple solutions to complex problems. We're not trying to offer, uh, to prescribe particular responses for every Christ follower. We're simply trying to provide a biblical framework for thinking about these tough issues, kind of defining the space in which Christ's people operate in some of these tough areas. In the end, we all may arrive at some slightly different perspectives. We may feel led to respond in different ways, but, but our responses and our perspectives have to be informed by this biblical framework. And so that's what we'll be doing for these next few moments. So I'll offer those biblical principles on race and racism. But then I'd like to invite you into a conversation I, I had with, a, with a, a friend from Grace Chapel. Try to bring a little bit more of a personal and practical perspective to this conversation. And then we'll finish out today with a wonderful time of communion as we celebrate together our oneness in Christ. Now before we get started, we should just acknowledge how difficult it is to talk about race, which is why we tend to do it so seldom and why we so often get in trouble when we do. Just this past week at an all-staff meeting, we were a Zoom meeting, of course, we were talking about some of these things. And even though I had chosen my words very carefully, two hours after the meeting, I had to send a follow-up email apologizing for and clarifying something I had meant to say that I just didn't say very well. So we all get this wrong sometimes. So as we enter into this conversation, can I ask that we do it with a spirit of grace and, and, and humility, that we, that we listen patiently before we react to something? It could be I'll say something that you struggle with, and, and that's okay. I'll simply ask that uh, 
Instead of saying, yeah, but what about? Just pause and say, okay, but can you tell me some more? And allow ourselves some time to, to process these things. I also want to acknowledge right from the beginning here that I am speaking from the perspective of a member of the white majority culture in our country, which is a valid perspective, but it makes it impossible for me to, to fully understand, let alone represent, the perspective from other cultures in our country. So that's one of the reasons I've invited a, a, a black friend from our congregation to join me for a conversation a little bit later in the service. So with all those things in mind, I'm feeling like we should just pause for a moment and pray before we start. So would you bow and just pray with me and for me as we begin? Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be gracious and honorable and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's get started. Let me offer four biblical perspectives confronting racism. The first is this. We are all made in God's image, equally loved, valued, and destined for eternal glory. We are all made in God's image, equally loved, valued, and destined for eternal glory. This is one of the fundamental truths of our faith, and it's found in the first and the last books of the Bible. The opening chapters of Genesis tell us, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And what was true of those first human beings is true of every human being. No matter their ethnicity or their gender or their orientation or their abilities or their social status, we all bear the divine image. We all share the divine mandate to, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it for the glory of God and for our own enjoyment. When the Bible speaks about God's love for us, about his delight in us, about his purposes for us, it applies to all of us, every one of us. Which means that every life matters equally. And so when we say black lives matter, we're not saying that other lives don't matter. We're simply saying that in our country right now, it feels like some lives matter more than other lives. Someone shared with me a simple observation on a biblical text this past week that I'm embarrassed to say I, I never really picked up on before. Jesus told a parable about a shepherd leaving 99 sheep in the fold to go off in search of one sheep that had gone missing. It wasn't that the 99 sheep in the fold didn't matter. It's that the one had gone missing, was in danger, in peril. Something needed to be done. So in a similar way, when we say black lives matter, we're, we're acknowledging that all lives matter. But right now it feels like black lives are are at risk, are, are in danger. And something needs to be done. 
So this idea of the equality of all human beings is found in the first and the last books of the Bible. Revelation chapter 7, we read, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is God's vision for humankind. Not only will all races be present in the kingdom, but we will continue to bear our racial identities because it's only in, in the diversity of our, those identities that we truly reflect the beauty and the glory of God. So that's our first biblical truth. Our second biblical truth is that racism is a sin which has infected every human society and every human heart, including mine. In the same way that, that the coronavirus infects human beings and, and does damage to their bodies, racism has infected every human being and does damage to our souls. And unlike COVID-19, racism is not a, a novel virus or infection. It's not new. It's been with us for a long time. And the infection rate is 100%. No one is immune. Now, there are a variety of definitions of racism you can find out there. I found this one helpful. Racism is the belief that a particular race is superior or inferior to another, and that a person's social and moral traits are predetermined by their race. Now, I realize that most of us would probably flat out reject those two premises, that one race is more valuable than another, or that a person's race determines their character. I think we'd all reject that notion. But the ugly truth is that we can't seem to help thinking and feeling that way and acting that way sometimes. Like it or not, we all have racist tendencies. We just can't seem to, to, to prevent ourselves from preferring people who are like us over people who are different from us. We can't keep ourselves from pointing out differences between people groups and passing value judgments on those differences. We have this tendency to, to jump to conclusions about people's character or personality or, or values simply based on their race. And it's true for all of us. I mean, consider Peter for a minute, the Apostle Peter, the rock of the church. Peter assumed that because God had chosen the Israelites to be his instrument in bringing salvation to the world, Peter assumed that God must favor the people of Israel. He, he, he couldn't believe that, that, that God had an interest in the Gentiles, that he liked the Gentiles, let alone that he would die for them to bring them into his kingdom. It took a dramatic rooftop vision and frankly, a spiritual whack in the head for Peter to get it. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, 
but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter was wrong in how he thought about certain people groups. And it wasn't until he recognized that he was wrong and repented of it that he and the church were able to get to a better place. And until we're prepared to admit that we are sometimes wrong in the ways we think about other people, in the ways we relate to and treat other people, until we're prepared to admit that we all have these racist tendencies, we'll never be able to get to better places. And so we, we need to admit that. We need to lament it. We need to repent of it. And by God's grace, we need to overcome it. We're, we're not just talking about not being racist. We're actually challenging ourselves to be anti-racist. A third biblical principle is that those who have power and advantage must use it for the flourishing of all people. Those who have power and advantage must use it for the flourishing of all people. Now, I, I could have used the word privilege here. You know how preachers love alliteration. Power and privilege, that works really nicely. But I know that privilege is, is a loaded word for some people. So let's just set it aside for a moment. And let's go with this word advantage. Those of us who are part of the white majority culture have an advantage because we're part of that majority dominant culture. We are like most of the people in our country and people like us are usually in positions of power. So when we walk into a classroom or a conference room or a church lobby, we don't have to we don't have to wonder if we're welcome in that space or, or if we'll be able to fit into that space. When we're walking towards someone on the sidewalk, we don't have to worry that they might be afraid of us because we're Asian and we might be carrying the coronavirus or because we're black and so we might be a criminal. We, we, we never think about those things. People of color, think about those things every day of their lives. Did you know that the strongest predictor of success in our country isn't a person's IQ or their SAT scores or even their work ethic? It's the zip code they were born and raised in. The schools they attended, the health care they received, the, the, the networks they were able to enter into. So, so, so those of us who have enjoyed the, the advantages of our race and, and those who find themselves in positions of power and influence, government leaders, law enforcement officials, employers, managers, church leaders, have to use whatever power and influence we've been given to, to partner with and to advance the flourishing of all people so that everyone has equal opportunities. Listen to what the Lord says to, to the leaders of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. 
Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Then your light will break forth like the dawn. You will be called a repairer of broken walls, a restorer of streets with dwellings. Friends, we need to be asking ourselves, how can we use whatever influence, whatever voice, whatever resource we've been given, how can we use those to address some of these injustices, to pursue equality and opportunity for all people? And we need to be asking the same for our leaders as well. We need to hold them accountable for the authority God has granted to them or allowed to them so, so they can be peacemakers and protectors and champions of liberty and justice for all. Well, finally, the work of racial justice and reconciliation belongs to the church because we have been brought near and made one in Christ. The work of racial reconciliation and justice belongs to the church because we have been brought near and made one in Christ. Before we go any further with this point, we have to acknowledge that we have not always done this well. Too many times in our history, the church has failed to speak or act on behalf of justice and equality. And so we have been complicit in, enablers of, and sometimes even perpetrators of these injustices. So we need, to, we need to face that in our history. Repent of it, and by God's grace, do better. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we who were far away, we who were the lost, have been brought near in Christ. We who were many have been made one in Christ. We belong to the one who has broken down the walls that separate people from God and from each other. The one, the one who came into the world as a member of a persecuted minority culture who took on his back all the injustices of the world and then died for them all in public view. And by his death, he said, this is wrong. This has to stop. And by his resurrection, he invited us to follow him into a new and better way of being human. Let me read to you these words from the Apostle Paul. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who were near. 
if anyone should understand the importance of peacemaking and the power of humility and the beauty of broken things being made whole, surely it's, it's followers of Christ, black and white and Latinx and Asian and Native American, we who have been many and broken now made whole and one by the work of Christ. As tragic and awful as all these things have been, some people are daring to hope that this might mark a turning point for our country, an inflection point that leads to change. If that's going to happen, people are going to have to step into the moment to embrace and pursue that change. Wouldn't it be great if the church could, could be those people? if the whole church, all the churches, partnering with each other and with all who are working for justice and opportunity and equality in our country and in the world. What if this could be that kind of moment and we could step into it? May it be so, Lord. May it begin with us. May it begin with me. So those are four biblical principles for thinking about race and racism. I believe those four should inform all of our thinking and doing in this area. But what does all of this look like on a personal and a practical level? What do we have to learn to hear from our brothers and sisters in the black community? For these next few minutes, I'd like to invite you into a, a conversation that I was able to have with a Grace Chapel friend. Well, I'm here with Kim Stanfield, a longtime member of Grace Chapel, longtime friend. Some of you may recognize Kim from her worship leading on our platform in Lexington and many of our Christmas Eve services over the years, so, and also her involvement with Mom to Mom. So thank you for joining another conversation today in front of just a couple of thousand people. Um, we're glad, to, glad you're willing to do that. We've prepared a couple of thoughts in advance, but we'll kind of see where the conversation goes as well. Uh, one of the points I made early on in the message was uh, that it's hard for a, a non-black person to understand the fear, anger, pain that the black community might be feeling right now. So if I can ask, could you help us understand perhaps a little bit of what that, is, what that feels like? Sure. Um, the fear and the pain and the anger that you know, many of us are feeling now is not new. And Obviously, I'm speaking for myself and my family, uh, but I think I can probably represent one sentiment that's held by many of my black peers, which is that we carry this fear and this anger and angst all the time. Um, it's visceral. Beyond the, um, the cases that are in the news now, the more egregious ones, there are microaggressions that we face every day. Um, they're personal, they feel exhausting. And there are conversations that parents of black kids have to have with their children, especially their sons, that no other parent does. Can, can you give me some, some for instances? Sure, sure. Um, if I were to think of a few specific examples, um, my husband and I have been singled out in stores, on vacation at our kids' schools, in the workplace. Um, some of the examples of microaggressions might be um, I'm in a store and I'm shopping like anybody else, clearly shopping, and the assumption is made that I work there. I don't have a badge, I don't have a name tag. Um, 
leaving a restaurant with our leftovers in the in the take home bag and someone assumes that my husband is the valet while we're standing and waiting for our own vehicle and personally you know even now i fear for the black men in my household and my family every time they leave the house because there is a real possibility that they will be perceived as more of a threat than they already are and it can be because of something as benign as what they're wearing um, my nephew um, in Georgia, he was recently stopped for speeding, and his mother has spoken of the palpable fear that she could hear in his voice. He had her on the phone with this discreetly tucked away, you know, for, for safety, and she reminded him of the protocol that they had practiced. And um, she talked about how she was both praying and holding her breath at the same time. And thankfully, she could overhear that it was a routine um, traffic stop and thankfully he came through the door you know uh, five ten minutes later where she said she exhaled and cried and hugged him and she just praised God that she got to hug him that time and that that routine traffic stop didn't prove fatal this time um, so it's exhausting and enraging and, and heartbreaking to hear about to realize I, I never think about those things. Right. I, I just I don't think about them. I don't I don't live with that every day. And right. And also a little uncomfortable as you give some of those examples. I wonder how many times I've done some of those things. Right. So. Thank you for, for sh sharing those with us. Uh, coming back to the events of of these past couple of weeks. Sadly, this this is not the first time. Right. That these kinds of things have happened. It's been going on for a long time now. Right. Does does this feel different somehow than any of those others? And if it, maybe it doesn't, but if it does, how might it feel different? I mean, in many ways, it feels the same. I would say the stories in this case are different. And maybe one of the biggest differences is that now this is a national conversation because we've all seen the tapes. Um, but for every one of these stories, you know, and not just, um, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, but even Christian Cooper birdwatching in Central Park last week. Um, for every one of these stories that we hear in the news, we hear them for about 10 days or until the hashtag cycle uh, wears off. But there are so many more stories that don't get told, which means that justice is really never served. Right, right. So, so that part doesn't feel all that different. Exactly, oh, right, right. exactly. That part feels familiar. The difference feels like now, somehow, I guess what has happened in the last few weeks has been egregious enough that very few people can deny, you know, this reality. And so maybe more people are paying attention now. Yeah. Over these past, this past week or so, tell me about folks who have reached out, what's been helpful and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I actually have had a lot of my non-black friends reach out, um, many of my Grace Chapel um, friends and, um, and others, and they've just said something to try to let me know that they too are heartbroken and sickened over what's happened or what is happening in our country. But more importantly, um, I've especially appreciated the people that have talked about the fact that they're committed to learning and to speaking up and to taking action and the honesty that comes along with saying 
I don't really know what that looks like yet. Or I thought about writing to you, but I wasn't sure if I should. And me having the opportunity to say, I'm glad you did, that even though this is uncomfortable, this is where real conversation um, begins because it's a shared pain and a shared responsibility. Um, and I, I appreciate people taking the risk to be honest and to be humble enough to say, I recognize that something is wrong. I, I, I see you, I'm with you. Um, we have to be able to examine and amend the institutional structures that really afford this hidden system of benefits, privilege to white people um, without white people feeling like it is an affront to their well-being. So, so it sounds like a couple things you're saying on the one hand, we, we should take the risk. Better to take the risk, even perhaps so. if you don't always get it right. Take I the risk so. and reach out, but then also be willing to listen even to the hard stuff, even past your initial exactly. resistance or exactly. defensiveness. Maybe. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good. Good. Unpacking this is not—it's not a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. That if we talk about racism, it's to the detriment of of white people. Uh, you're also a mom, so you yes. have uh, three young adultish uh, kids in your life. How are you? How do you process this? What does this? What do these conversations look like at home? Huh. There is definitely a range of perspectives. Um, my kids definitely share the frustration and the anger. Uh, they have actually expressed some discomfort with some of their non-black peers reaching out to them. I think their sentiment is, why now? Or, you know, where have you been? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. this, is not, this is not new. I have encouraged them to accept, to try to accept that these conversations can be uncomfortable and this can be messy, but that that's okay. Mm -hmm. And to really try to be open to sincere effort, even if people aren't getting it exactly right. Um, they're definitely in the millennial category. Um, I think we're all struggling to know, well, what can we do? We, we all, this, this has our attention. People are grieved. We want to do better. Thoughts for us? Uh, what, what are some practical things that folks can do right now? Um, obviously, I can't speak for all black people, um, but I do think that I'm probably okay to say this on behalf of many black people, which is that the onus is not on people of color to always make white people feel comfortable talking mm -hmm. about race. Mm -hmm. um, also, we can't be the only ones concerned about the issue of racism. Um, this time that we're experiencing now could actually be a really important inflection point. It's a great opportunity to use the many resources that are circulating online to educate oneself um, and really decide personally what actions one might take to address prejudice, to acknowledge privilege, and to ultimately you know, do some actionable things to fight intolerance. Um, I do have a few points that I might suggest. Um, I guess the first one is listen mm. and believe. Mm. Listen to people and believe them when they share their story. Try to resist the urge to second guess or challenge them with other angles. Listen to people and believe them when they, um, when they tell their story. Secondly, I would say have conversations. Take the risk. Lean into this new consciousness that is, is happening right now and in, in one's own spheres of influence your dinner table, 
your workplace, your social circles, notice and speak up when intolerance is being mm -hmm. perpetuated. And that is scary sometimes, yeah. but I think it's, you know, important. And I think the third thing I would suggest is to engage civically. Um, there are many opportunities right now, including reading things, as I mentioned before, petitions, engage your representatives and your community leaders, and obviously vote. Vote, right, okay. Yeah. You've been part of Grace Chapel for a long time. Uh, we've kind of been on this multicultural journey as a church for a long time. Yeah. How's that experience been for you, frankly? Uh, when have we gotten it right? What do we need to do better? What would you say to our congregation right now? Yeah, um, I love being a part of Grace Chapel. Um, I would say the thing that we do a really, really, really good job at is being a Bible-based church. And I definitely think that there is careful, prayerful consideration given to seeking God's truth for you know, who we are and what we're doing. I think that we need to do a better job of responding to our call as Christians to react to injustice. Mm -hmm. um, we can't be governed by the fear of touching this third rail issue mm. of talking about injustice just because it bumps up against politics. As Bishop Desmond Tutu said, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. Mm. And so the times where I have felt maybe disappointed is when I felt that we were being, we were taking too much of the privilege of being neutral. You've spoken into my life <laughs> uh, appropriately and passionately and I just want to thank you for your love for Grace Chapel and for the kingdom and for me and for this church to be willing to do that and to hang in through tough conversations sometimes and not give up yeah. and not walk away because it's easy to do that and I think right. one of the things this journey requires is just perseverance. I would agree. Hanging in there with each other, being gracious coming back for more, asking forgiveness, trying again. Yeah, I would agree. So thank you for being part of that. I'm, I'm honored and honored that you're allowing us to do this today. So any last thing you might want to say? Um, well, I thought about a scripture um, that I think captures what I would want to leave our um, church family thinking about in, in addition to all the things that I, that I said. And that's from Micah 6, 8. And I really like how the Good News Bible phrases it says, the Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to show constant love, mm. and to live in humble fellowship with our God. We don't, we don't get in out, we have to do what's just, and that's how we show that we love the Lord and love each other. That's great, Kim, thank you. Thank you again for this conversation and others past, and hopefully some in time to come. And I thank all of you for listening in for a little while. Well, thanks, Kim, for entering into this important but challenging conversation today. And thanks to all of you for bringing an open mind and spirit to this topic. There is certainly more that could be said and, and much more that needs to be done, so we don't want this conversation to end here today. So as Kim said, let's continue to, to be listeners and learners. Let's continue to take risks with each other and be gracious to each other. Let's, above all, let's continue to follow the way of Jesus as we bring peace 
to, to those who are near and to those who might be feeling far away. 